0: Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I trust that you hear the invitation of God as you join us today. Just a reminder about the Big Three podcast, which kind of goes alongside of these sermons. Each week we collect questions from our congregations and then answer them in a podcast that goes for about 45 minutes and is released on Wednesdays. We'd really encourage you to have a listen as we go deeper into the issues and topics raised in each week's sermon. We are nearing the end of our series in Revelation 2 and 3 that we've called Seven Letters, Seven Lessons, in which we're seeking to listen to the discipleship lesson that Jesus has for the churches. This week, we turn to the church at Philadelphia, a church that was doing it tough, but to whom Jesus has nothing but good to say. If you have your Bibles with you and want to turn to Revelation chapter three, uh, this is where we're up to. reminder about the discipleship menus uh, on our website under the growing tab and look, uh, sorry, next steps tab and under the growing uh, section, Uh, you'll have a whole kind of slew of activities that you can uh, attempt to do together uh, so that we can be moving in the same direction. Also a reminder about the big three, our weekly podcast that comes out normally on Wednesdays. This last week was a little bit late, but comes out on Wednesdays. And the QR code, uh, is there behind me? If you want to snap that, take yourself to Slido. Any questions that? Um, sorry, was I in your way, Matt? Um, uh, any questions that are raised by the uh, sermon tonight? Just kind of drop those in the Slido, uh, and uh, we take uh, questions from our online service, our morning services, and our evening. Take the big three, and we talk about it. So last week, Jess Baker and Matt and I sat down and uh, had a good conversation. Great conversation, actually. Um, Jess is uncertain. I thought it was great. Apparently not. Um, But uh, you can listen to that. They come out on Wednesdays, as I said. Another way for us to engage outside of Sundays with what it is that God's saying to us as a community of faith. So uh, if you've you've got your Bibles uh, open to chapter 3. We're up to the sixth church uh, that Jesus writes to uh, and this is um, the sixth letter and then therefore the sixth discipleship lesson for us to be listening out for. Uh, And as I uh, read through this letter, as I reflected on it, there's an old old chorus that I learned as a child. Uh, We're not gonna sing it because I don't want you to mask up, but feel free to say the words if you know the song. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. I'm glad I'm not the only one who learned that. I have no idea how young I was when I first learned that song, uh, nor how many times I have sung it or how many times I have heard it sung, but it resonated with what Jesus has to say to the church at Philadelphia. So I want to read this letter to you, uh, see if you can kind of spot some of those little parallels, little places where those, that song and this letter connect, and then I want to share my reflections on it with you. So the, the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, "These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now you may have heard a couple of like uh, places where that song, that simple little chorus from childhood um, and, and, and this letter connected. Right There's the reference that Jesus makes to the fact that um, he will make people acknowledge that he has loved them, that he does indeed love the church in Philadelphia. And on top of that, there is the reference to the fact that they have little strength and that it is the strength of Jesus that they are going to be relying upon. Uh, and, and those are the two kind of places that kind of immediately drew my attention, but it was actually something different that really kind of got me thinking. And it's really the matter of how do you know that Jesus loves you. How do you know? Uh, because uh, there, there, are, there are times and places when it's easier to say that Jesus loves you than others. If you think about that song for a moment, uh, it is good solid Protestant evangelical theology, isn't it? Because how do we know that Jesus loves us? The Bible tells me so, right? So even when I don't necessarily feel that I am loved, even when I don't necessarily feel the presence of God, I know that there is an objective reality upon which I can build my life, that the word of God contains truth, and that on that truth I can build my life, as as we've already sung, right? And so there's something really kind of, there's good theology in that song. Not only the affirmation that Jesus loves us, but that the Bible tells us so. Now interestingly, in this letter to the church in Philadelphia, the question of how they know Jesus loves them I think is is a little bit tricky to answer. I mean, notice first of all that Jesus is going to make their enemies acknowledge that Jesus loves them, right, Jesus says, I will make your enemies, the ones who are currently, you'd have to say, therefore uncertain of whether Jesus loves the community of faith there, I'm gonna make them acknowledge that yes, I do. You, You hear me, follow me on that one? So the enemies of this Christian church, those who were opposed to them, essentially would look at them and say, no, I don't think Jesus loves you. And the evidence was fairly compelling. I mean, here they are, a, a, a church that is not very strong. They're not experiencing the strength and victory and the overcoming that you might expect of people who are loved by Jesus. In fact, we're told in a couple of places that they have been enduring patiently And when you are enduring patiently, it's because something has to be endured, right? So here's a group of people who are facing opposition, who are facing hardship, who are facing potentially persecution. And when things are hard, how do you know Jesus loves you? (laughs) Because the evidence when things are hard is that, hmm, maybe not. So how is it that this church in Philadelphia knows that Jesus loves them? Because I find it interesting that Jesus tells them that he will cause their enemies to acknowledge that he has loved them, but he does not remind them that he does. It's almost as if the people in Philadelphia knew that Jesus loved them. They knew that Jesus loved them. They didn't have to be reminded of that. Even though they were going through a hard time, even though they were facing opposition and and persecution, they still knew that Jesus loved them. How did they know? How did they know? And then the clue for us is actually found in the opening of the letter. We haven't actually spent a lot of time in these descriptions, but every letter opens with a description of Jesus of himself, right? And so if you have a look again in chapter three verse seven and, and, and the description that Jesus uses of himself. He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open. Now if you read through all of the little introductions to all of the letters and then looked back in chapter one, you'd find that nearly all of the references that Jesus uses to describe himself are taken from that initial vision. This one, however, is a little bit different. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn back to Isaiah chapter 22. Because it's actually from Isaiah 22 that Jesus is almost quoting as he describes himself to the church in Philadelphia. And I believe that it holds for us the clue for how the church in Philadelphia knew that Jesus loved them, and therefore a fairly important lesson for us. All right, Isaiah chapter 22, and if you have a look in verse 22 of chapter 22, you will read these words. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So there it is. That's the passage that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 22. But to understand what that means, we need to look at the entire oracle, the the prophecy that this is a part of. So in Isaiah chapter 22, let's look at verse 15 where this begins. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go say to this steward, to Shebna, the palace administrator, what are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock? Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country, and there you will die. And there the chariots you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. So, the story so far. There's a palace administrator, obviously a very powerful person uh, in the, uh, the monarchy, whose name is Shebna, and he has basically been using his power and authority to make himself look good. He's planning his mausoleum, right? So that when he's gone, you can look on the heights and see the tomb of the great and mighty Shebna, palace administrator, right? He's collecting chariots as kind of a way to demonstrate his wealth and his power and his influence. He's basically going about making a name for himself and God has had enough. And did you notice the language of judgment? Right, you Shebna are basically acting like a big fish in a little pond. And I'm going to, I love this, verse 18, I'm going to roll you up tightly like a ball. How's that for an image of judgment? Not normal kind of fire and brimstone. And I'm going to hurl you into a large country. You might be a big fish in Jerusalem, but this country is going to be so large that no one will know who you are. And you'll bounce around and roll around and finally end up behind some furniture in some backwater country, and that's where you're going to die. You with me so far? Then there's a contrast. The prophecy continues. In that day, the Lord says, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. So where Shebna was basically looking out for himself, trying to kind of establish his legacy, make sure that everyone remembered him for all time, Eliakim is actually going to be looking out for the needs of the people that he is supposed to be serving. This is the contrast between these two palace administrators. Then we come to the verse that we've already read. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. Ever prayed that promise for yourself? Oh, Lord, make me a peg driven into a firm place. Probably not. You might want to start because listen to what that means. He says, he will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. Its offshoots and and offspring, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. God will drive him into this position in such a way that all of the glory of his family will hang off his achievements and his accomplishments. It's a fairly significant promise. But let's come back to verse 22. This key to the house of David and the ability to open and close things that no one else can open or close. The house of David, of course, refers to the monarchy, right? And it seems that Shebna and then eventually Eliakim were those who, controlled access to the king. So if Eliakim said to you, you will be able to bring your petition to the king or I will bring your petition to the king, it went to the king. And if he said, you may not see the king, you may not bring your petition to the king, there was no higher court of appeal. If he opened the door, No one could stop you from seeing the king. If he closed the door, no one could get you through it. He was the final stop before you saw the king. And the king, of course, in a monarchy, the source of life and justice and blessing and benefit and security and all of those sorts of things. This, this is the image that Jesus uses when he talks to the church at Philadelphia. And I think it's a fairly intriguing one. If you go back to Revelation chapter three, I think there's a couple of immediate parallels between Eliakim and Jesus, aren't there? Eliakim, driven like a peg firmly into the wall, I mean to describe someone who can, uh, upon whom all, of, all glory can hang, that sounds like Jesus. Uh, Eliakim, the one who will look out and be a father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah, someone who has enormous authority, but is not gonna use it for his own benefit, but instead uses it for others. I think we can see the parallel with Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not, did, uh, did not consider equality with God to be something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, and being found in likeness as a servant, made himself obedient even unto death. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Great authority, but an interest in those that he is serving. All authority, all glory hangs off of him. But that's not the comparison that Jesus draws, is it? The comparison Jesus draws is with this open door, right? He says to them, not only does he describe himself as the one who can open and no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open, but then in verse, uh, the second half of verse eight, he says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut and follows it up with, I know you have little strength. I know you have little strength. So what is the door? that Jesus is referring to, right? If Eliakim was like really the person who could let you into the courts of the king or deny you entry, what is the door that Jesus is here talking about? And again, if you have your Bibles, flip back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the book of Hebrews as a whole, is written to a group of believers who are struggling and grappling with how do they hang on and endure and remain patient and faithful to Jesus. This is their big struggle, right? And uh, in chapter 10, a fair way into his argument about how great Jesus is and all that Jesus has done, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 19, says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. The door that Jesus is referring to is the door into the presence of God god now you might think you know you'd be you'd forgiven you'd be forgiven to think this that when you enter into the presence of god that's an opportunity for worship that's certainly true never inappropriate in the presence of god to declare his glory and greatness and all those sorts of things but in the book of hebrews it's not a worship experience that jesus has opened the way for In the book of Hebrews, the reason why Jesus has opened this living way into the most holy place is so that those who are struggling to hang on might enter into the presence of God himself and receive what they need to continue. Revelation, chapter three, to a church that is struggling to endure A church that is finding that there is a a, a suffering that they must patiently go through. A church that is weak. A church that has enemies. Enemies who say you are not loved by Jesus. This church seems to know that they are loved by Jesus. And how do they know that? Because Jesus has opened a door so that they can access everything that they need to endure. If you kind of move through the letter at verse 10, it says, uh, Jesus says, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And, and the little descriptor, inhabitants of the earth, is actually kind of, um, it's not code, but it's a technical term to describe a particular group of people in the, in, 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 in the world. If you have your Bibles, flick ahead to chapter 13 of Revelation. Chapter 13, verse eight. So the the phrase inhabitants of the earth is used multiple times in Revelation, but here's perhaps the clearest example of who this group of people are. Verse eight of chapter 13. All inhabitants of the earth, there's that phrase, will worship the beast. All, you say? Not quite. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. As far as the book of Revelation is concerned, there are two groups of people. There are those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life and there is everybody else, the inhabitants of the earth. And the book of Revelation talks about a coming judgment that will come upon the inhabitants of the earth. Those who have placed their faith and their trust and their hope and their security and their assurance and their confidence in the worldly institutions around them rather than in Jesus. And when that judgment comes, it will have devastating consequences for the world. And Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia that I will keep you in the midst of that tribulation. Again, one last passage, John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. Uh, And uh, in the midst of this prayer, he has these words to say. Chapter 17 of John's Gospel, verse 15. He says, my prayer is not that you, Father, take them, my disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer, Jesus says, is not that you take them out, not that you remove them from the trouble and the hardship, not that you make it easy for them. My prayer is that in the midst of the difficulty that you will protect them. And the Greek word that's translated as protect in John chapter 17, verse 15, is the same word that's found in Revelation 3, verse 10, when Jesus says, I will keep you. I will keep you in the hour. The tribulation will come you will experience it, it will be a crisis, and I will protect you. The church in Philadelphia, I think, knew that Jesus loved them because he had provided all that they needed to endure. That's how they knew that Jesus loved them. And that then is the, shall I say, the discipleship truth of this letter. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Well. The Bible tells us so, that's one good indicator. But we also know that Jesus loves us because he has opened the same door for us. He has opened the same door for us and it is a door that can never be closed to us. Jesus has opened it, no one can shut it. It's as if he has torn it off its hinges so that it can't ever be closed again. He has made a way into the presence of God. That's the discipleship truth. Here's the discipleship lesson. If Jesus demonstrates his love for us by tearing the door out of the frame so that we can always, always, always go to our Heavenly Father to receive all that we need, the discipleship lesson is don't stay in the foyer. Because when you were in the foyer, when you're kind of hanging around in the lobby, things are just really hard. And all you can see is the the persecution and the opposition and the hardship and the loss and the frustration and the disappointment and the regret and the need and the struggle, that's all you have. And there's an open door leading to the Father. The discipleship lesson to the book from from the church at Philadelphia is don't live your life in the lobby when the door is open to your heavenly father. At any point in time, at any point in time, you can go to the presence of our heavenly father and ask in Jesus' name because Jesus has torn the door off. And it's Jesus who has invited us in through that new and living way. And we know that the Father will do what the Son asks because the Father loves the Son and the Son does the will of the Father. And when we come in Jesus' name, we can ask for whatever we need. Heavenly Father, I need wisdom. I need wisdom, I need discernment to be able to figure out what's happening. I need courage. Heavenly Father, would you grant to me the clarity to understand the call that you have given to me? Would you fill me again with your enabling Holy Spirit? Would you grant to me the gifts and the abilities that I need, a sense of call to step faithfully into all that you have invited me into? Would you grant to me your compassion for those in my life who are just uh, unlovable? Would you help me to see them with your eyes? Would you grant to me your love, your kindness, the fruit of your spirit, patience and self-control? Would you work in my life to transform me? Would you give me eyes to see the opportunities that are there before me? Grant me the words to speak. Would you fill me with your strength for I am weak? This is the opportunity that lies before every single one of us. to a church, to a church that was struggling in the eyes of the world. To a group of believers who from the outside were not loved by Jesus at all. They knew that they were loved because Jesus had provided a way for them to receive all that they needed. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Don't live in the lobby. Life is hard in the lobby, but there's a really big, gaping, door it's not going to slam shut on you you don't need a swipe card for it, it's just open go through ask your heavenly father for what you need because this is the discipleship lesson from the church in Philadelphia whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches I'm going to invite Beth and the team to lead us in a closing song. But as they come, would you allow me to lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have um, done everything necessary to provide a way for us into the presence of the Father. I pray that we would have the boldness to step through that open door. And even tonight, with all that we feel that we need, for all that we require to persevere, to to make it through whatever is next, I pray that we might come to you even now, even tonight, right now, as we worship and bring before you what we need. And I ask that by the power and enabling presence of your Holy Spirit, that we might receive fully what we require we thank you that we can turn to your word and know that you love us we thank you that we can approach you and know that you love us and I thank you that for many of us we have experienced that love personally relationally where we have uh, recognized your forgiveness where we have been aware of your kindness where we have had prayers answered where we have had an experience that is undeniably you and I pray that we might even tonight step into all that you have for us and that my, we might receive generously from you and that we might endure and hold on and persevere and be faithful all the days of our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There is an open door that ushers us into the very presence of God, who supplies all our needs. If you are, like the Church at Philadelphia, finding following Jesus tough, don't stay in the foyer, but enter through the door that no one can shut. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. And remember that you can find our Discipleship menu for this series, a set of simple exercises designed to help you internalize these messages, on our website under the Next Steps and Growing tabs. Join us as we seek to follow Jesus together. We'd also love for you to join us for our online services on Sunday at gbconline.org.au, 9.30 Australian Eastern Time, or you can visit our website for service times on site. Our website, gymiabaptist.org.au. Hope to see you again soon, and until then, God bless.